You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. So today, as we look at the scripture, I would invite you to take your Bibles, turn over to the Older Testament. We're in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. We are looking at the life of a prophet named Elijah. We started a couple of weeks ago, and I would encourage you, if you want to kind of catch up, we started with this great battle that happened on top of Mount Carmel, and then uh, last week, Pastor Sam took us to kind of our introduction to this Tishbite, this Elijah from Tishbe, and today, we're going to pick up after that battle has taken place, after rain has finally fallen, after three and a half years, and we're going to see exactly how he responds. But I think it's important for us sometimes when we come to church, to just remind ourselves of a few things. When I was a kid growing up, I grew up in a rural area in East Texas, and as a kid growing up, there were some things that I noticed about coming to church. One of the things that I noticed is, when I would go to church, everybody was always fine, just fine. How you doing this morning? Fine. So I know that everyone here ate vegetables every day last week, got eight hours of sleep every night. There's no relational conflict. The money is flowing. You're getting along with your spouse and your kids, and everything's fine, just fine. But in case you're like most of the regular, normal folk who are not lying, shots fired. I love you. I want you to know this is a bunch of people who are gathered here, not because we have it all together, but because we know that we need the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, as we come to the prophet Elijah, we have this story and we remember these great things that happen. Most of us remember this fire that fell uh, there on top of that mountain with the challenge of the prophets of Baal. Most of us, if you don't remember, show up next week. Spoiler alert, Elijah gets to ride in a flaming chariot up to heaven. And so we remember these things, but sometimes we look at the Bible and we think, okay, so the Bible is this collection of people who are sinless paragons. They got it all together. They figured out how to check off their to-do list. They figured out how to manage their budget and their time. They figured out how to make their way in this world. They figured out something that I haven't figured out, but I need to look at them. They're the champions. They're the ones that I need to be like, but that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is that Jesus rescues broken, weak, and needy people, and he accomplishes his good purpose through them in spite of themselves. And for that, I am thankful this morning. So I want you to know, you may be a little bit jaded against organized religion. You may have lots of questions about Jesus. If you're an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, a faithful follower, backslidden somewhere in the gaps, or have no fat, hairy clue how you got here this morning, but are thankful for coffee and donuts, we're glad that you're here. And as we look at the scripture today, I want you to know, when we look at this, I, will, I want us to see what happens to a lot of people. You see, I thought when I was growing up that since you were supposed to be fine, just fine, that had not been my experience. A lot of times, when I arrived on Sunday mornings, I was not fine. I didn't feel fine. I didn't like most of the members of my family, and I'm pretty sure my mother would have given us away to the first person that would be willing to accept us. So we walk in, and I did that, and, and it became jaded. So then when you go to college and somebody talks about organized religion and the hypocrisy that's there and it shouldn't be there, it starts to get teeth, and you start to think, that's right. 
Maybe this whole thing is a sham. Maybe it really isn't what it's supposed to be because I keep trying and my life's not getting better. I don't seem to be getting it together. I'm struggling, it seems, with the same sinful patterns. I'm struggling with the same things and I don't know what to do or where to go. I want you to know that today as we look at this story, we're going to see the flight of Elijah. Elijah running because of fear, depression, anxiety, But dear ones, I want you to see the flight of God pursuing him. I want you to recognize that although we became the objects of God's wrath, we also became the objects of his gracious search. And he pursues us in love. And I am so thankful today that as we read this story, when the guy who's going to ride in a flaming chariot When the guy who called down fire from heaven, the guy who prayed in three and a half years, no rain, when he struggled, when he wasn't looking so much like the prophet of God, God was merciful and kind. He met him in his depression, anxiety, and fear. He met him in the darkness of despair where he was. And I hope that by God's grace, you will see that in his flight, there is another who is flying after him still. So 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to begin. Would you stand with me this morning that we might honor the reading of God's word together? The Bible says this, Ahab. Now, Ahab was the king in the northern kingdom, and Jezebel is his wife, all right? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And he was afraid. He arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came, and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now. O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. He lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. He lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord, he was not in the wind. And after that wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Ebel-Meholah, you shall anoint him to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. May God bless the reading of his word. It is living and active. Receive it as such today. You may be seated. So we pick this up right after this incredible battle on top of a mountain. Fire falling. This perseverance in prayer. Where for the first time in three and a half years, finally rains. And before the rain arrives, uh, Elijah goes to King Ahab and he tells him, listen, I need you to get in your chariot and I need you to make haste. You've got to get back quickly. Rain is coming. I don't want you to be bogged down in the plains and stuck. And so he takes off. Where we're not given access by scripture, Jezebel awaits. Somewhere in that royal area awaiting news as to what was going to happen. This battle where her prophets were going to have a showdown with this prophet of Yahweh. She had been very zealous in her desire to get rid of anything that looked like God in their kingdom. She had put to death prophets. She had torn down the high places. She had said, listen, there are many ways to God. And, and we're, there was this syncretism and all of these other gods that people pursued. She had wanted to make sure that there was nothing that people could see, hear, or read that would point them to the one true and living God. Ahab arrives. Ahab is an unsavory character, quite honestly. He has very little spine and not much control either in his house or the kingdom. And as he arrives, Jezebel is waiting to hear what has happened, and he recounts to her what is happening. You can imagine him telling the story about what happened on the mountain, and he's like, and they just kept pouring on water, and he poured on some more, and then he just prayed, and then it was like, and it was like, and it was like, and it was amazing, right? And Jezebel's listening to this, and she's drinking it all in. And then he says, and he took all those prophets, like 850 of them, down to the brook, and they killed them right there. And the people were saying, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. It was awesome. And you would think, perhaps Jezebel in that moment might recognize the awesome display of power that God had shown. Perhaps in that moment, even just for the political wisdom that might exist, to say, let me get on board with at least what's popular right now. And if the people are okay with the idea of Yahweh, maybe I should be okay with it as well so that I can gain some points in the polls. You would think that perhaps she might say, you know what, maybe there is something more to Yahweh. But I want you to know, when it comes to God's miraculous signs and wonders, it is not those things that save. Even today, we proclaim God's victory over death, 
a risen Savior. And people still reject the truth. It, it will not be because of great apologetics that people will come to faith. Only God saves. No, Jezebel hardened in her hate and enmity with God. In her heart, she would have no, no submission to this high king in heaven. And in a rage, she sends messengers and she says, you go find Elijah. And I'm going to swear an oath that may the gods do so to me. And even more, if he's not dead by the same time tomorrow. Now, it's important to note that normally, if you're planning to kill someone, sending messengers to warn them that it's going to happen is probably a bad idea. But nonetheless, that's what she does. And to this brave prophet of God who took on 850 different prophets and there the fire fell and all this, the word comes, Jezebel is going to kill you in less than 24 hours. Now you might think, well, the prophet of God, certainly. He's seen too much. He's experienced too much. He knows this God. Surely he's going to stand his ground. And say, listen, did you not learn anything from what happened there? Have you not yet understood or seen his power? I want you to know that there is a high king in heaven. He rules and reigns. He is sovereign over all things, including your storm gods and every other invented creation that you worship. But that's not what he does. Fear seizes him. And we read this and we think, well, well, certainly, this is just irrational. How, how can this be? Anxiety takes hold. And depressed, Elijah takes flight. He runs. And he's running, and so he comes to this place called Beersheba because he's gone into the southern kingdom now. He had been in the northern kingdom under the rule of Ahab, but he comes to the southern kingdom and this inheritance of the tribe of Simeon there, and Jehoshaphat is king. The problem is Jehoshaphat's wife was also the daughter of Ahab, so he could find no safe place there. But he leaves his servant. And in isolation... He finds himself alone in the wilderness under a broom tree. And he's done. He's got nothing left. Some of you know what the edge of despair looks like and feels like. Some of you know, or at least you think you know what it looks like to stare down into a pit that you can't find a bottom for. Elijah's come to that place. This prophet of God, having experienced and done so many things there under this broom tree, has just had it. But oh, the kindness and power of our God. God, in this moment, he, instead of saying, Elijah, you're no better than the people who have sought to worship these other gods, be it out of fear or out of neglect or whatever thing, instead of saying that and taking and consuming him in fire, God does something wonderful that he has been doing all of Elijah's life. He feeds him. Think about this. Elijah's an interesting character. Elijah had been fed by ravens, Pastor Sam told us last week and showed us in the scripture. Elijah was fed by a widow in Zarephath with these vessels that seemingly could not run out of oil. 
And now, having taken flight and running from Jezebel in a suicidal moment of despair, God doesn't chastise him. He doesn't consume him in fire. The high king of heaven who calls the stars by name and commands the universe also cooks. And, he, and all the Baptists said, right? And he sends an angel. This angel with hot stones cooking this bread. And Elijah awakens and he doesn't say, now that you're awake, it's time to have a good stern talking to. Go back to sleep. He awakens again. Eat. He says, listen, this journey is going to be too much for you. For 40 days and 40 nights, he travels. The sum total of this trip by the time it's done is about 300 miles. How about we all take a walk to Nashville? And as he walks, he's headed toward the mountain of God. Now, people know the mountain of God. They know Mount Horeb. They're familiar picture of wilderness wanderings, picture of how God bore up his people on eagles' wings, how he delivered them out of this place. Elijah is familiar with it. He was from a place that was desolate anyway. He makes his way to the mountain, and he goes inside of a cave and lodges in that place. The Lord comes to him. Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah clearly has practiced his speech because he repeats it twice. I've been jealous for the Lord of hosts. I I mean, I'm the only one left. All the other prophets are dead. And now they're, they're seeking to take my life. All of Israel's broken their covenant and they're doing whatever. God doesn't answer him. He just says, I want you to come out here. He comes out. Winds begin to rush around the mountain. He can see whatever vegetation is there bending beneath the will of these strong winds. But in those winds, God wasn't doing the talking. Oh, his actions were speaking. He's still sovereign over the winds. And the psalmist tells us that he tells the wind where to go. But it wasn't there. Elijah confronted as the ground begins to quake and tremble. Rocks falling down the side of the mountain. Surely he's got a care and concern for what's going to happen next. Will the ground open up? He knows stories of the ground opening up and swallowing disobedient people. Maybe he will be hit by one of the rocks falling. Maybe there's something else. But that wasn't where God was having his instruction come from. And then something he was very familiar with, and he would see yet again, fire. Fire comes, but that that wasn't the place where God wanted to speak with him. But then something happened. Just this small, hushed whisper. There was something wholly indifferent about this. Elijah knew something. In the midst of all those other things, he hadn't covered his face, but in this one, it was different. And so he wraps his face and he goes and he recognizes that God is speaking and God asks him again, what are you doing here? Elijah rehearses his speech and goes through it. We have no dialogue. The Lord just says, I want you to turn and go back. Go back to to Damascus and I've got some things for you to do. 
There's going to be a new king in Syria. There, it, it, there's going to be some other things that are going to take place. And there is going to be a new prophet named Elisha that I'm going to raise up. And he goes. You see, there's some things that's important for us to see. Some things when it comes to watching Elijah's flight. Elijah lost perspective. You can hear it in his speech. I have been jealous for the Lord, the Lord of hosts. But he also said, I'm no better than my father's. I can't help but wonder if there's just a little bit of self-righteousness. Does that mean that before this he thought he was better than his father's? He's losing perspective. I'm the only one who's left. Everyone in Israel has turned away. And I'm the only prophet that's left. He's forgotten a conversation that he just had with one of the king's servants where he said, I'm hiding two groups of 50 prophets in different caves and I've been feeding them all these three years. He's losing perspective. He says, they're seeking my life to destroy it. At this point, all we know is that there's just one person who wants him dead. Jezebel. You see, what happens for us and what happens for me is there are oftentimes these moments where we feel like I'm finally making progress. I'm finally, I can see the Lord's transformation in me. I'm finally getting it. There may be even those places where there is great victory and success, where we can just sense that God's work of sanctification and our glad submission to it is finally yielding this fruit of righteousness only to find ourselves stumbling into the same patterns, misguided, believing half-truths, losing perspective. Elijah was tired. He was spent. Before Ahab made it back to the kingdom, he had already run the 17 miles ahead of him. Some of you in here who are the runners and believe that running is fun. Some of you are in here and believe you only run if the bear is chasing you. Some of you are like, I'm just done. If the bear's chasing me, I'm laying down. I'm the snack. (laughs) He's already run 17 miles to the kingdom. He's tired. They had spent all day on top of the mountain. He had watched these prophets, these false prophets of these false gods. There was no rest. There hadn't been slumber. It doesn't tell us that he took a meal. He had poured himself out. They had even given themselves to the execution of those false prophets. And now he's running farther away. And now he's leaving his servant. He's worn out spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Listen to me, dear ones. There are some important spiritual principles that sometimes we fail to recognize because they don't sound real spiritual. One of the things Adrian Rogers used to say that brought me great joy was this. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sleep. And all the nappers in the room said, amen, right? See, we don't pay attention to these things. There are indicators and places where we sometimes put ourselves when we're at the edge of ourselves. Often men who will come and talk to me about their struggle in anger and trying to control their tongue. One of the first questions that I ask them is, okay, so tell me about your schedule. And I find that sleep patterns are infrequent. You see, It seems less than spiritual, but the truth is we need rest. We learned that from the very beginning. 
The Lord God rested from his labors, not because he was tired, but because we needed a pattern. There is only one who doesn't sleep or slumber. There's only one who in the middle of the night I can call out to because I can think of him and he remembers me through the watches of the night. Sleep reminds me that I'm not God. I'm not immortal. I can't just do everything. You see how practical God's care for Elijah is. He gives him sleep. The Bible tells us that the Lord gives sleep to his saints. It also says that sometimes he will withhold sleep from his saints. But sleeping can be a very practical and helpful thing. Isn't it amazing what a good night's sleep will do? We all talk about it. Eating. He says, listen, Elijah, you need to eat. You've been running. You've got to recover and refuel. Everyone who runs long distances knows about recovery days and making sure that you're putting the right things in your body. This is so very practical, God's care for Elijah, but he is pouring into him. He is giving him food. He is giving him water. He's giving him rest. Even the physical aspects. Elijah, let's take a walk to a mountain. Going, changing his scenery. A change of perspective, a visit to a different place, the beauty of a mountain where sunrise and sunset look so different, where clouds seem so much closer, where the entire terrain is different, the vegetation all so different. He's changed perspective. Elijah's still not coming around. He's still secluding himself. He's removed himself from community. He left his servant, and now he's all alone, and he keeps pulling back into the darkness. He's lodging inside the cave because he doesn't want to get up. He doesn't want to go out. He doesn't need the sunshine on his skin. He's just had it. But God is so kind. He's giving him sleep. He's giving him food. He's giving him some physical exercise, and he's bringing him out of the darkness. And suddenly, Elijah, who's very familiar with fire, had to learn that God is more than just fire. He's gentle. The Bible describes God like a mother with a nursing child. He's tender. He's compassionate. There is an intimate care for his children. And for a disobedient prophet who has run a long way, God is drawing him out of darkness. He's pulling him into the light. And suddenly, in a whisper. You see, dear ones, sometimes we forsake and forget these small, quiet, steady means of grace. Sometimes we forget just the simple taking up of God's word so that we might sustain our souls. Sometimes we forget that God always speaks through his word and he can always be trusted in his word. Sometimes we forget that it's not always going to be in the big service or concert with the lights on and hands raised and goosebumps that God is working. Sometimes we fail to realize that perhaps in a kitchen, bleary-eyed, with a child walking through, we may see his goodness. Elijah comes out. Elijah, what are you doing here? See, God's word hadn't told him to go there. God's word had come to him and told him to go back and tell him that the rain was coming. God's word had come to him and said, we're going to do this battle on top and we're going to vindicate my name and my holiness. God had told him all, but he didn't tell him to run from Jezebel. 
But instead of scolding him, he's patient. Elijah pleads his case again. This is where I am. This is what I've done. This is unfair. He's lost perspective. He's lost direction. He's lost the world. He's willing to lose his life. And God is loving him and feeding him and giving him rest that only he can give. You see, Spurgeon said this, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. For you see, pastorally, when it comes to depression, anxiety, and fear, I cannot simply prescribe two verses and tell you that everything is going to be okay tomorrow morning. What I can tell you is this, that even in the darkness, his light is greater. That even when you think you're alone, it's impossible if you are his child. And that regardless of whether you think you feel like it or you're getting anything out of it, his word is always powerful and it cannot fail. Sometimes it's in the slow, quiet whispers in the middle of the night when you finally have got the salt taste out of your mouth from the tears that the dawn begins to break. And as he comes to Elijah, he says, go back. Go back. See, this is the beautiful thing. Yes, I grew up thinking that all Christians were always supposed to be fine, just fine. But we know that we're not. Well, here's the reality of things. God is kind, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he will always receive a broken and contrite soul. And to the repentant soul, he never turns them away. For that prodigal, before you're ever out of the mud, the father's already running. For the thief... Paradise is already waiting. There is a God who loves the broken, the anxious, the fearful, the depressed. There is a God who sustains us even when we think we're at our end. And that same God loves in spite of our faithlessness. Elise Fitzpatrick said the depressed don't simply need to feel better. They need that redeemer who says, take heart, my son, my daughter. What you really need has already been supplied. Life no longer has to be about your goodness, your success, your righteousness, or even your failure. I've given you something infinitely more valuable than good feelings. I've forgiven your sins. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When it comes to these trials temptations, circumstances, the darkness, when everything seems to be caving in, you can trust that God is exactly who he said he was. He will be near to you in your brokenness, and he will meet you under broom trees in the desert, in caves in the mountain. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We've got to see where are the patterns? What are the things that lead us into these places? Elijah had lost his perspective. He had the truth twisted. God even assures him at the end, I'm saving a remnant. God always saves. 
And I want you to know, Elijah, even though you've lost perspective, there are more prophets and there are more people and I am still doing my good work of salvation. And I want you to know, Elijah, you still get to be a part of that despite your failure. I'm so glad that for prodigal prophets like Jonah, the word of the Lord comes a second time. I'm so thankful that for suicidal prophets, the word of the Lord says, go back the way you came. I'm so thankful for the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and millionth chances. Do not let your heart grow weary. Do not think that organized religion is a sham. It is a sham, but Jesus is not. And Jesus has come for the broken. Men at their best are at best still men. Our hope is in the Lord and what he has done for us. Ask yourself, how does Jesus understand me in this situation? Ask yourself. What should I say to God? Redirect those energies. Look at what God calls Elijah to do. He says, I want you to go and make a disciple, particularly of a young man named Elisha. I want you to go and serve and give yourself away. I want you to know I'm not done with you. You haven't lost your usefulness just because you ran. You haven't lost your usefulness just because you are locked in despair, depression, anxiety, and fear. I want you to know your usefulness is not based on your goodness or your power or your ability. It is based on my grace, my power, and my ability. And there is no one that is outside of my reach. This is the good news of the gospel. For you see, dear ones, when we read the Older Testament, the way that you understand it is through the lens of Jesus. You see, there will come another time in Elijah's life. He will disappear from our sight in a flaming chariot, but that's still not the end. Because there's another mountain visit that's coming. You see, the way we understand the Older Testament is through the lens of Jesus. And you see, there would be a mountain later on where Elijah, Moses, and Jesus would gather. God's glory revealed just a little bit more. And to a reluctant, ill-tempered deliverer and a flighty prophet, the prophet and deliverer who would never fail in any way, would discuss with them his departure and would tell them, I have come to set free the depressed, the fearful, the anxious. I have come to restore sight to the blind, to proclaim the good news that Jesus rescues broken people who can't seem to be fine and get it all together. I have come not as a prophet who will reluctantly go, but as one who will say, not my will, but yours. As a deliverer who will not walk through a sea, but will walk through death. And as a king, a friend, and a savior who will be with you always. Even in flight, even in caves, even in earthquakes, winds, and fires. I will be with you always. I love you. You see, dear ones, this is the story of scripture. This is the way we understand it. We are not trying to be like an inconsistent prophet. We are looking to the author, perfecter, and champion of our faith. That anchor for the soul where it can be trusted. So whether you are here today and you're in flight, whether you're worn out physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, 
Whether you're in a cave of darkness that nobody else understands. Whether you're at an edge of a pit that you don't know where the bottom is and you don't know what to do next. Can I tell you this? There is a God who always speaks through his word. He loves you. He is always near the desperate and the broken. And he can save. Look to Jesus. He will save.